Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Scarlett Tudor, who is the Research and Outreach Coordinator for the Aquaculture Research Institute at the University of Maine, but that barely scratches the surface of our conversation. Scarlett's passion for fish, her specific area of interest is behavior, made me love them as well. And even though we've known each other for a while, I learned a lot about Scarlett and what made her a scientist. I hope you enjoy the episode. Scarlett, welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I know that you are into aquaculture and uh, have done really cool research on animal behavior, if I have that right. Before we even get to that, if you could let us know kind of a little bit about you, where you grew up, uh, how'd you get into science? Yeah, so my story, I think, is a little bit interesting in that I grew up in southeastern Ohio, um, where we don't really eat seafood, nor is aquaculture really a thing there. I would say, I think the the thing that really started me on my pathway to science as, a, as an adult looking back now, I can say this is where I started, um, was really in 4-H. So I started 4-H when I was eight. I was in 4-H till the time I was 17. Um, I did a lot of different animal projects. I had, you know, a pig, chickens, uh, geese, ducks, rabbits. I did that um, whole thing. But I've also had fish tanks since I was a little kid. So like since I was eight, I've had fish tanks. I've always been really interested in fish. And so like other animals, I I took Aquaria in 4-H and I actually went to the state fair one year um, with my aquarium. So my, <clears throat> my interest in fish has sort of always existed. However, you know, I come from a poor part of Ohio. Um, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And so this idea that my interest in fish would actually lead to a career path or something that I got paid to do wasn't that that wasn't really a connection that I made at that age or even when I was in high school or when I started um, to go to college I actually was in uh, community college for nursing to begin with Um, I liked biology I liked math and it only took you know a few semesters of trying to work in a nursing home to realize I'm not a nurse (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I really value what nurses do, and I think that good nurses are an amazing asset to our community, um, but I'm just not one of those people. And so I, it was actually hard. I actually had to tell my family, look, I'm, I'm quitting doing this thing that you see as a realistic career path for me. Um, and I'm going to study fish, which was like, you're going to do what? Um, and my family, even still, it's like, I tell them I teach because if I talk about my research, it's like, they still don't quite understand how I get paid to do the things, um, that I do. And, and so I, I kind of took a little bit of leap of faith, like this isn't working for me and I can't see me doing this for the rest of my life. Um, And so I started an undergrad at Ohio University. I happened to live um, near Athens. So that was an obvious step from community college um, to to the university setting. But again, I mean, I was like a lot of undergrads that we see at UMaine where I like fish or I like sea turtles and I have no idea 
what that means or where that leads or what careers are, are open um, to people with my sort of interests. And honestly, I was super lucky that my first year during my undergrad, I met uh, a professor in an intro bio class, Molly Morris, and she really was this life altering mentor that I met because I was interested in her work um, and she studies sort of evolution of behavior, behavior in fishes, alternative mating strategies in fish. And it was the first time where I sat in a class and somebody said like, you can get paid to do the thing that you're interested in, that like I'm innately interested in makes me qualified for an actual job. And so, you know, I, I was so nervous to meet her. I was so nervous to interact with her. I wanted to, I so wanted to be a part of her lab that I was just like, uh, 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 you know, um, when I talked to her, but uh, she has, has been, is still amazing and amazing mentor for me. And so I started working in her lab and then uh, she works with librarian fishes, swordtails, northern swordtails, and their um, natural distribution is across Mexico. And so when I was an undergrad, I was going to Mexico two to three times a year for collecting trips. And so now my interest in fish got my foot in the door. And, and frankly, all of my scientific jobs, I feel like in part why I got that job is because I knew how to care for fish. Um, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not a skill that they typically teach, right, in, in any sort of curriculum for the most part. And so because I had this skill, because I was just innately interested, and because I had 4-H helping to foster these interests that I had, you know, I, I got into this lab. And, and then you know, that lab really shaped me, definitely certainly as a scientist, but really also as a, as a person. Um, I was able to go to places in Mexico that, you know, it's not the touristy part. Like we were literally out in the middle of nowhere, you know, finding small streams and, and looking for these fish and seeing parts of the environment that haven't been touched by development and, and by humans. And in fact, one of the trips we were on, um, we came across this little town and they weren't even speaking Spanish. They were speaking like a, a Mayan language. So again, like to, to sort of experience all of those things at a young age, I think had really large impacts on me. And like, certainly as a scientist thinking about, you know, the importance of our environment, the need to protect that environment, um, but also diversity of people and how important that is. And then again, it, it all sort of, you know, started because of, of my love for fish. And then I, I started, I started, uh, I stayed at OU, Ohio University for my master's degree. Um, and then I did my PhD in, in Florida. And, and again, I think when I started my PhD, the, the typical track is like, oh, you get a PhD and then you go and get a faculty job. Um, and I had some significant losses during my PhD. I lost both of my parents within a couple months of each other. And those life experiences changed who I was as a person, but also the things I wanted out of my life, um, which also impacted my career and, and where I wanted to be. And so I, again, kind of took this leap of faith. I moved to Maine because my 
partner had a job here. I literally didn't know what I was going to do, right? I thought, well, I can work at a grocery store. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could, you know, I'm sure I can get a job um, to figure this out, but I'll be near a university. So the likelihood that, you know, somebody will need somebody to clean up fish poop like that, you know, that's, that's likely that that might be another job that I could do. So I moved here before I finished my PhD. Um, I took a little bit of time off because again, you know, having, having some substantial things happen in your personal life certainly affects what you want out of your career. And I needed to take the time to figure that out. And so I ended up finishing my PhD. And when I moved to Maine, I started working with the, um, the University of Maine's Aquatic Animal Health Lab. And again, I got that job because I knew how to take care of fish. It certainly wasn't because I knew anything about animal health and it certainly wasn't because I knew anything about aquaculture. Um, and so I worked in that lab for seven years as a, a technician. And so I did the, the day-to-day kind of stuff. But I also learned a lot about another aspect of science, which is contract research, where we're working for companies um, that are interested in developing, in this particular case, you know, developing um, things that are used by the aquaculture industry, whether it's um, vaccines or in feed additives, um, just products that help Maine's aquaculture industry. So I learned yet an, another completely different aspect of science where we're doing research for the FDA or the USDA or the Center for Veterinary Medicine. And then my exposure and learning about aquaculture, again, kind of circles back to my love of fish in general, because the hobbyist industry is a huge part of aquaculture that we don't often think of. Certainly in in Maine, I think when you ask people what aquaculture means in Maine, it's seaweed, it's oysters, sometimes it's, it's salmon. But, you know, we're starting to get a lot of companies that are coming to Maine to do land-based aquaculture for other species. Um, certainly American Unagi is a really interesting company because they're growing out American eels. And so that company is actually utilizing a fishery that is unique to Maine and keeping those animals in Maine for grow out so that all of the money that comes from that fishery, Maine is actually benefiting from the whole life cycle and not just selling those organisms at a young age to Asian markets for them to then um, reap the benefits of those. We have companies doing um, Amberjack, the Micmac, uh, Banna Micmac. They have a farm doing brook trout, both for um, you know food preservation and food sovereignty, but also to replenish wild stocks of brook trout. And so I've, you know, as an environmentalist, I think that aquaculture is a really important way for us to produce proteins and for us to produce foods. And certainly with COVID, it highlights the need for us to have domestic seafood production um, so that we're not dependent on other countries for the, the, the food that we consume in this country. So my career, again, I'm an animal behaviorist. I started out my career as an animal behaviorist. And now my job is one that I'm developing curriculum. I'm um, working with workforce development issues. Um, Animal behavior is also a really important part in aquaculture, whether it's understanding reproductive behavior to help us break the life cycle of new organisms that we'd like to culture. That's certainly important in the ornamental industry, but 
but also as a, a food production mechanism. And so I have a unique job. I don't have a faculty job. I have a PhD and it, it benefits me to have a PhD, but I don't have that typical PhD faculty position tenure track job. I have so many questions. <laughs> um, Ohio University, it sounds like they don't have a different marine sciences department like you mean. It's biology. Is that... Well, okay, so the hilarious thing is I was actually a marine biology major at Ohio. That is hilarious. Yeah, right. So in part why they have that is there are a lot of students that are interested in marine biology, but parents can't afford to pay out-of-state tuition, right? And so they're servicing a group of students within our region, but I could have graduated without setting foot on a boat. You know, um, they they do, and I had some great um, marine biology courses where we took field trips, like to Chesapeake Bay. We got to see horseshoe crabs uh, reproduction cycle, and so th- the faculty there really did try to get us to the ocean. But again, the reality is you're you're almost in a landlocked state, ex- except for um, the Great Lakes, and so uh, yeah, it was a little weird. And then I will also say. I completely changed my major to biology because I didn't like physiology. I didn't, I don't, where my partner is a physiologist and I'm the behaviorist, you can blatantly see the difference between the two of us and our interests. (laughs) So um, I ended up switching my major so that I didn't have to take um, more cell bio or physiology. You said you were the first one in your family to go to college. That in and of itself it makes it really hard to explain, as you said, to your family, what it is that you do and what it is that you want to do. Was there, was there something like, what was it about this mentor or class that you were, you knew that you could do fish to make a living? I mean, was it, was it literally as simple as an offhand comment of you will get paid to this for this, or was there just something more that you were able to grab onto? It was literally her coming to class saying, this is my research. I am interested in students volunteering in my lab. And so I think that day I was like, okay, I got to be a part of this chip's lab. Like, I don't know what I got to do, but like, like I got to try this. And, you know, I think I encourage any of the undergrads that I work with. I mean, finding your passion is about being exposed to things and trying things. I mean, I have students that think like, oh, animal behavior is going to be awesome. And then I'm like, okay, cool. You're going to sit in front of this tank for four hours and write everything down that happens. And then they're just like, wait, what? And it's like, this is the job. You know, and sometimes things sound like they'll be really fun and you'll be really into it. But then in practicality, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that. And so just the idea for me was that like, oh, hey, there is a capacity at which I can work with fish. She studies behavior, which ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be able to communicate with animals. Right. And learning how animals communicate with one another is kind of the closest I can get to being able to do that. And then I will also say it wasn't just about that one mentor either. I mean, at the time, we had two or three postdocs in the lab that also had really huge impacts on me as a scientist. Natalie, Carla, and Oscar had, you know, in some ways as much impact on me because 
when you first start in the lab, you don't, you don't always work with the faculty. Like sometimes you work with their grad students or their postdocs. And so the opportunity came, I took the opportunity. And then when I tried it, it was like, it felt like I found my tribe, right? Like it felt like, whoa, all of these people are super interested in these things that I'm also interested in, which gives you a little bit of, um, you know, reassurance that like, I'm not totally out there in the things that I'm interested in because look, these other people that I see as successful are also interested in the things that I'm interested in. And I also think that this, uh, this ability or these opportunities for me to travel, that was also really important for me because I felt like I never quite fit in, in my hometown where, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't part of the rich kids because, you know, my family, you know, we were on welfare and our high school was kind of divided into like the professors and doctors kids and then the kids who were like me. Right. And it was like I I had dreams that were outside of my social class peers, but I didn't fit in economically with the kids who shared some of my same ambitions. And so I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And then to like come into this place where it feels like, oh my gosh, I, I fit in. They're not judging me based on my family or my economic status, right? They don't, what they care about is that I enjoy doing the work. I show up when I say I'm going to, I care for the fit, you know, like those were all of the things they cared about. And so it, it it really is almost, I mean, it is an academic family. These, these people are my academic family. And so, yeah, it's sort of all of those experiences made a difference. It's pretty awesome to find your tribe is one thing, but to find your tribe when you have no guideposts to, to lead you there is even, it's just really nice. And I feel like, you know, I, I definitely think some of it, some of it is like luck that those opportunities came across my path, but at the same time, I took advantage of those opportunities. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about how different my life could be just by a small step in another direction. Yeah, I, I feel very lucky, very fortunate that I had all these really great, great people. And it's why I try to be a good mentor for other students. And, and I, I work with a lot of students and they're like, my parents think I should do this. And, and it's hard for parents to know my kid is really interested in this career path and then what are all the opportunities within that, right? And so it is important that, you know, to have these mentors, you know, like myself are the ones that I've had to help guide you because your parents or your family can't do that. I mean, they, you know, I mean, they just unless you're going into a field that your parents are in or your family is in. I mean, it's, it's hard for any parent to be the ultimate mentor for your kids. So it's also why I love, I love working with students and, you know, I, I could have easily not been a scientist and that feels like, I don't know, that would have been a shame, I guess. Yeah. You mentioned animal behavior. I know nothing about it except that I know it sounds really cool. Can you just give us kind of a, a broad overview and then how you figure it out with fish? 
Yeah. And so there is, I think one of the coolest things about animal behavior actually is that it's a highly integrative field. And so you could talk almost about any type of science um, and there is some relation to that in animal behavior. Even things like biomechanics and anatomy, like understanding how organisms move. My, what I'm mostly interested in is, is sort of the evolution of behavior and the evolution of communication. There are other people that are interested in understanding how organisms are able to produce the signals. So you're talking about more mechanistic, hormonal, neurological um, capabilities of doing those things. Where I'm more under- interested in understanding why do organisms do this weird stuff that they do. And for me, I, I think it's even, you know, when Darwin was first coming up with these ideas of natural selection and, and evolution, um, he saw a lot of these organisms that have behaviors or pigment patterns that morphologies that make absolutely no sense in terms of survival alone, right? You can look at lots of male birds with their wild colors and calls, same with frogs, all of these calls. You look at a lot of fish species that are um, dimorphic or you know, where females have one morphology and males have another morphology. And across lots of taxa, males tend to be brighter, louder than their female counterparts. And so if you just look at those in the context of natural selection and survival, they make no sense. Why are you doing that? Why are you attracting predators and parasites and who knows what else? Like there has to be some benefit to those things. And that's where, you know, he started thinking about sexual selection and that those traits, those morphological traits and, and, and signals are used in attracting mates and deterring rivals. And so that's where I've been most interested And historically, the field of sexual selection, people have really looked at the evolution of male traits, or we want to understand why and how these male traits exist. And so females, while they have been measured for their mating preferences, um, it hasn't really been to understand the evolution of the preference per se. It's about understanding why the male traits have evolved. And so I got really interested in understanding, well, well, what about the female perspective? Why, what makes those preferences evolve and what benefits are the females getting? Um, especially when I started my undergrad, there, this, this idea of developmental plasticity um, and female preference variation was picking up some traction. And it's this idea that like preferences change throughout a lifetime or um, across environments, right? And you know, I even, I even say this um, when I teach classes, like, you know, if I'm in a room of 20 somethings and I ask them what they value in a mate or a partner today, right? And I put all those answers in a time capsule and I had them answer that when they become my age, you know, the answers I think are going to be starkly different from one another. You know, I, I even think about my my mating preferences and partner preferences today is like, I prefer somebody that can pay a mortgage that has a steady job that, you know, um, shares the goal of staying in on a Friday night. Uh, You know, those are very different than what I would have told you in my twenties. 
And, and this idea that you see uh, changes in preference over time, it happens in a lot of other organisms. We also know that females change preferences based on environments, based on food quality. Uh, and so that's, I kind of really wanted to study sexual selection from this female perspective to understand when do we see this type of variation um, and what does that type of variation mean for the evolution of the female preference itself, as well as some work looking at, well, what does that mean for the evolution of, of male traits? So like when I was in Molly's lab, we studied female preference variation in terms of the maintenance of alternative mating strategies. So there's um, a fish species within the northern swordtails that has two completely different types of males. They look completely different from one another. One is really big and flashy, and one is really tiny and is one has one color and doesn't court um, like the big flashy males do. And so the interesting thing is like when we see that type of variation within a species, well, how does that get maintained? Like evolutionarily, if there's a benefit to having one type or another, you would expect over evolutionary time to just see whichever one is a little bit better, but that isn't what we see. And so understanding how female preference plays a role in that, I, I thought uh, was really interesting. My partner works a lot with contaminants um, and the physiological aspects of the effects of environmental contaminants. And so when I moved here, and started hearing the labs talk about contaminants and what they do physiologically, I'm like, we should be looking at this in behavior. I mean, like it's one thing for a chemical to affect a physiological process, but what does that mean? Like if, if the effects on that physiological process aren't affecting reproduction or survival in any way, then why study that? Or, or you know, what does that mean exactly? So we started looking at arsenic, um, which is a, a really important contaminant to Maine. Our wells are high um, in arsenic naturally. And so there are natural um, sources of arsenic. And I was like, this is a perfect thing to start looking at, because um, there had been some studies showing that it increases anxiety in fish. And so I wanted to understand that in terms of reproduction, not just its toxicity um, or the physiological effects, but what effects do those sorts of things have on behavior? It feels like the world of science is catching up very, very slowly with recognizing that there's more than the male of the species that needs to be looked at. And you could <laughs> fill in any, you know, uh, I, I have told friends and colleagues and family members about how so many drugs have only been tested on white males and they're just stunned. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's who did the tests and that's who they decided the population was. So there's a result that, you know, it's, it's guesswork for kids. It's guesswork for women. It's guesswork for fill in the blank. And I find it really interesting that if you're looking at reproduction and, and that has been going on since Darwin, to think that the only one who has a driver in it is the males of the species. Um, the less diverse the community is that's doing the research, the less likely you are to get the, to the real root of what's going on. So if you only have one perspective going in, you're just not gonna see it. And, and I think that science has been hindered by that for a long time. So 
as an aside, I, I think the very best thing we can do is increase the diversity of the people who are doing the work. And you can fill in the blank however you want to fill that in, right? That means we need yeah. more women. That means we mean we need people who haven't had a long history of their family going to college. That means we need people of color. That means, you know, it's just, it's really fascinating because I think science has done really amazing things and it can only get better the more we make it diverse. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, even this idea about female preference variation, you really started to see it come from women. You know, that the more women that were in the field, you know, I think obviously Molly, my advisor, um, had been looking at variation in female mate preference or variation in general, um, which I thought, you know, was interesting, but you had other people like Alex Basolo, Gail Petroselli, you know, there's a whole list of these other women that certainly had an impact on me, but I think also had a real large impact on the, the questions we ask. And I, I think this is a really important thing too. I think, you know, one of the things that I always loved about Molly too, like we would go into the field and it didn't matter how much experience we had. She always listened to everyone because everybody comes with a different set of eyes, a different set of perspectives, and that those perspectives can show you something that you're not seeing, right? And so I do think diversity is extremely important for us to understand anything fully. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's really important too, for where we live, that diversity doesn't it's not just a catch-all, right? There are, there are so many different ways that we have diverse communities in Maine, um, whether it's economics or where you live or whatever. It's not, it's not just this, this stereotypical, you have to fit into this, you're upper middle class, white and Ivy League educated, and that's different than going to a public university and that's it for our, our diversity. Yeah. So after what sounds like a really... A hard time that most people don't have to go through until they get significantly older and wiser <laughs> and you manage to get to Maine. Now you're at the Aquaculture Research Institute, Institute. right? What on earth is that? Uh, we're an institute um, on the campus and our goal is really, we do a lot of research to help uh, the aquaculture industry right now. You know, we're also doing a lot of workforce development programs to really help meet the new workforce that I think Maine is going to need. There's a lot of workforce development work that needs to be done. The Gulf of Maine Research Institute just, you know, published a paper and a review about the workforce development needs that we are going to need in Maine. But I think that we have at least five new land-based facilities coming to Maine, and that will radically change what aquaculture looks like in the state. Because you're going from this coastal aquaculture that I think most people think of to a land-based facility that brings uh, new technology, it brings new jobs. It also brings an interesting way of producing food. And so our institute, again, we do a lot of research to help promote those industries. So what are the new innovations that need to happen um, to solve problems that the industry has today? Um, we're helping to train students and, and we actually have a, a sustainable aquaculture certificate program that we're currently working on 
that is available for our students at UMaine, but it's also going to be available to anybody. So anybody can take these courses um, through a fee-based structure with a collaboration um, through Cooperative Extension, where you can come for a week workshop and learn what is aquaculture, how do I maintain these uh, recirculating systems, what is the basic biology of these organisms that we're trying to culture, um, to give people skills that, again, they're, you know, like me, I didn't you know, there is no training to like, how do I learn how to work with fish, you know, and, and not just the sort of theoretical, like, well, they need this or this, but like the literal, you're in a room every day. And I know that if my room sounds different, I need to start looking for something. And those kind of skills require this hands-on in lab training, um, so we're we're adding those courses to the curriculum. We're doing a lot actually in in all kinds of aspects. Also, uh, you know, outreach. I think aquaculture in the state. You know, I think it's divisive anywhere. I think that there's a lot of misinformation about what aquaculture is, what the impacts of aquaculture are on the environment, and with. The, our current sort of aquaculture landscape, it's a little bit easier for people to get on board with oyster culture or seaweed culture because there is inherent value of coastal life in Maine, right? And those organisms that we farm that are part of this coastal life, it is e easy to see the inherent value of those. And I think a lot of these land-based facilities, you're not on board with that same sense of coastal life. And I think our Institute is trying to also educate people about what are the facts, right? About land-based aquaculture, about aquaculture in general, but, but certainly land-based I think is where we'll need um, more heavy consumer education and to have an institute that's unbiased, like, you know, my minor in college was environmental science. You know, I am an environmentalist, but at the same time, I realized in order for us to feed the people that we currently have on the planet today, not 10 years from now, not 50 years from now, but today, we need to do something with our food systems. We need to do something different. And there's a lot of reasons why fish are a great food source. Um, they are healthy proteins, but in addition, there are just things about their biology that make them um, better for the environment to culture. If you compare it to beef or pork, the amount of water they use is less. Their feed conversion rates um, are almost one-to-one, -one, where if you're looking at, at chicken, beef, and pork, it can be anywhere from four-to-one to, to eight-to-one. Feed conversion rate is... How much food you have to feed an organism to get a pound of edible meat from that. And so for fish, it's almost one-to-one where these other organisms, it can be up to eight times the amount of food you need to put in to get one pound of edible meat. And, you know, the other thing is how we culture fish. They're schooling fish. They are adapted to live closely together because this is what they do in the ocean. And so for me, you're also kind of 
it's it's not as much of an ethical issue because we're rearing them in the way they normally behave in nature. So, and again, I, you know, I've gone through phases of, of being vegetarian. I've gone through phases of only eating fish. I've seen the entire process of producing salmon in Maine and I still eat salmon. So, you know, our institute, like I said, we're, we're trying to help promote aquaculture throughout the state really coming up with these innovations to help not only Maine, but the entire U.S. um, with its food production. And I think Maine is in this really cool place where I think we're at the cutting edge of a lot of this technology. And Maine might be this place where we are looked at nationally for food production and these new technologies and, you know, our training abilities. Um, I think all of those things just add a lot of opportunity to the state, especially in rural areas in the state. Because once you start talking about land-based systems or like aquaponic systems, you know, we the more technology we create for this type of agriculture, you know, the further from the ocean we can be. And then now you're starting to put jobs where people really need them in the state, where there isn't a lot of tourism, there isn't a lot of, you know, coastal money coming. Um, and again, I, I think of Micmac Farms, right? They have a, a trout farm in Caribou. And I think what's really super cool about their facility, and again, really, you know, again, as Indigenous people have always been thinking about the land and how to preserve the land and how to do the best for the environment, their business is actually running a recirculating system with brook trout. And then they take those wastes and they use that for fertilizer on potato crops or other agricultural crops. Those are the insights. How do we get from where we are today with land-based technology to the next sort of innovation for that? And again, you know, there there is only, I think, one other business in the United States that does aquaponics, and that's in Wisconsin, Superior Fresh, where they're um, culturing salmon, and then they do a lot of lettuces. And I think even in some parts of Maine, you can actually buy their lettuce at the store. And so how does Maine, how do we get there? You know, how do we get to that next step um, of food production? I want to circle back just a smidge onto workforce development, because that is a phrase that is bandied about. And I don't mean that badly. That is a phrase that is said by a lot of people, but it kind of has this aura that I don't think, I think it either means something different to different people, or it just sounds like the jargon that was thrown out once in a Harvard business school class that the rest of us kind of latch onto that we don't really know about. So in the context yeah. of what you're doing, if you could explain workforce development, that would be really helpful. So what we're trying to do is look at the an aquaculture business. And I want to know when I have a student that applies to work in that business, how, what do they need to know to be a part of that business day to day? Right. And so one of the things that ARI also runs is a, um, an industry partnered internship program. 
And our internship program is really unique in that you're not just working for a faculty that does research that's important to aquaculture. I mean, that is one type of internship, but to me, that's an academic internship. You're expecting those students to stay within academics and do research. But our internship is unique in that we work with aquaculture businesses across the state, and we actually place our students within that business. And so they are working the data. I mean, it's, it's siphoning fish poop. It's, you know, watching filtration systems. It's doing water changes. It's, it's the work that has to be done every single day to make that business run, not the theoretical things that have to happen or innovations and research that have to happen. And I've learned a lot about this actually with the contract work that we do and the research that we do because we have students that wanna help but they don't know anything about fish. And the reality is you turn one knob wrong, you've killed everything. I mean, the risks are so high for somebody coming in, not knowing what they're doing, that you could completely wipe out a year's crop if you don't know what oxygen levels the fish need that you're culturing, or you don't know these valves are for this, or what way the water is recirculating, or, you know, and so we're trying for us, our workforce development is really about those hands-on practical skills. Like, Lots of businesses don't necessarily care. Did you get an A in organic chemistry? Because you're not solving organic problems, organic chemistry problems on the job, you know, but you are measuring temps and and dissolved oxygen. You you need to know the biology of your organisms. And, And even what's interesting is that even fish behavior can be a really good indicator of whether your system is working properly. So knowing what is normal fish behavior, what do fish look like if they're not getting enough oxygen? How do they behave if, you know, all the waste is too high in the system? So those types of skills that would allow somebody to step in a business and be like, okay, you teach me a little bit about the specifics of this particular system, but I know enough about the biology of the organisms. I know about the daily care that they need that I can now participate. And so, you know, with our internship too, our undergraduates are doing research that is industry driven, right? So we're trying to add to the capacity of research that these businesses need and certainly working on contract work and coming from an academic background, there's a huge difference between industry timeline for research and academic time for research. I mean, they, they could not be any different, their timelines, right? So again, you know, exposing people to what industry needs are, what their timelines are for that type of research. Um, and, you know, making a group of people that are ready to step into these jobs that are coming to Maine in a real way in a in a practical way not just well I you know I have my undergraduate degree so that means theoretically I know a bunch of stuff you know it's like you have to know you have to know right there's a threshold for the amount of information that you know right but after that it's about what can you do and a lot of these skills that I'm hearing from the aquaculture industry I can teach middle school kids you know so 
I'm working a lot with Cooperative Extension's 4-H program. There, We have a 4-H aquaponics project. We ran it virtually last year. And I, I was able to take part of it last year because of COVID, because everything was virtual. Um, but I think that we're working with other programs like Sea Grants Aquaculture Maine that connects educators, researchers, and the aquaculture industry, right, to give kids exposure to place-based research. So research that is important to Maine, but also tying in what skills does the industry need and meeting those skills that kids are, you know, lessons that kids need throughout school. Um, and I know that there are a lot of schools around the state that are starting to put aquaponics in their curriculum. And, and we're trying to add this aquaponics and aquaria part to some of the 4-H programming now. And, and again, for me, it, it kind of circles back, right? I was in 4-H. I, I got my job because I knew how to take care of fish, period. I, every academic job I have gotten is because I had this specific skill that isn't easy and isn't intuitive. You know, fish aren't mammals. So the things that they need are completely different than what we need. And teaching kids those sort of things, you know, when they're young, one, it helps kids that were like me identify that like, hey, you're just innately interested in fish. Awesome. There are many career paths for you. And maybe that's in research, maybe it's not, maybe it's culturing them, maybe it's starting your own ornamental business. I mean, there's so many opportunities for those sort of things. And so interacting with people to give them skills that the industry really needs and not just theoretical sort of experience. It sounds like in, in a lot of ways, the work that you're doing at the Aquaculture Research Institute is the perfect culmination of all of your background before that. Um, because the one thing that you'd said earlier that I, I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up is you, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't know anything about aquaculture per se before you got there, but you've learned about aquaculture, but also about fish behavior and, and how they are with aquaculture. So I was hoping you could give an example of something that you learned with that, that, because I know you love the, the behavior part. So yeah. what, what kind of struck you with that in your culminating job here that I'm going to just call it from that from now on here? I think I learned a lot about behavior doing husbandry, right? And so there is this interconnectedness between being able to take care of an organism and keep it healthy and understanding what its normal behaviors are, right? And so even as a little kid, right, I just loved watching my fish, but me watching my fish means I'm able to spot anything that's unusual, right? And if I can spot something that's unusual before it becomes a real problem, I can save my fish. I can, you know, uh, the health of my fish. I'm doing this 4-H aquarium club and I, it's amazing. I love it. I don't have children. I don't have plans to have children. I never really thought that I would love working with kids so much. I mean, just because like, I don't interact with kids regularly, you know? So I was like, okay, well, this is something I'll try. But I, I love seeing these kids make the connections that I've made on their own, you know, like kind of helping guide them. So like, for example, we have, we have one 
student that took the aquaponics course last year, um, program last year, and then he's in our aquarium club. And he was like, yeah, I had this catfish and, and it had a little, little fuzzy thing and I took it out and I put it in my quarantine tank and now he's doing a lot better. And so that whole exercise, right, he learned what the normal behaviors were. Then he saw something that was unusual knew how to take care of the fish, knew how to run a quarantine tank or a separate tank that you can pull out fish that are sick, medicate them until they're well and save all the rest of your fish in the tank. Then he was like, I'm not sure why that happened, but then I, um, I did some research online and it looked like that was caused because I stirred up a bunch of the sediment and that isn't good for this particular catfish species. So that maybe what happened, but like, I'm just totally blown away because like, yes, I helped him make these connections between A and B, but now he's making connections between A, B, C, and E, right? And, and even that ability is important as a scientist. Your observational skills are, are certainly important as a scientist. They're certainly important when you're talking about husbandry of live animals. I don't care why whether you're doing it for food, whether you're doing it for research, whether you're doing it um, you know, for ornamentals, those connections of husbandry are extremely important. And again, there's a kid who's 11 or 12 and I've already, I've, I only needed to do a little bit. You know, I only needed to, to foster that a little bit and then his passion and excitement kicks in and then they can make all of those connections themselves. So, so yeah, I think, really for me, understanding that behavior and observational skills are, are really fundamental to, to husbandry of, of any type. And then being able to kind of teach that and, and see that in, in other kids, just it's, it's been really, really amazing. It is really lovely to talk to someone who is so gung-ho about what Maine has to offer as, as I am on a well, some people would say hourly basis. So, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. I've learned a bunch here. You and I've known each other for, for I don't know, some time. And I, first of all, I had no idea that 4-H even had or like aquarium stuff. So that was really cool. The other thing I can't believe I didn't even connect is that you could present at state fairs with aquariums. Like, also cool, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was awesome. I actually got a whole 10 gallon setup for free when I went. I was so excited when I was a kid. That's really cool. I mean, you think of state fairs, let me rephrase that. I think of state fairs having lived in the Midwest only for a very brief period of time for two years that state fairs are all about, you know, cows and goats and all of this other yep. stuff. So really cool. Really cool. Scarlett, this has just been fantastic. I I can't wait till we can all be back together in person and we can get in front of uh, uh, crowds of both grownups and kids and talk about this stuff. I know that I had, I'm pretty sure I had roped you in to run during the field trip day of the festival for 2020. And so I'm just telling you right now, I'm putting that on hold until we can do it again in 2022. So I'll let you, I'll send you the calendar date. So you don't, <laughs> you don't book anything else so I can have you. Please do. I am always up for talking about fish ad nauseum. <laughs> I know. It's pretty good. It makes I'm I'm up for hearing you talk about it, which is not something I would have expected before you and I met. So <laughs> cool. I, I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. 
The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I received production support from Miranda Bouchard. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.